Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello again and welcome to this third special bonus edition of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul. I'm Isla Traquair. So the last episode, number three, was called Manhunt. And that was because it was most likely that the crime was committed by a man. But as you heard, the bank card was used by a young woman, but not Melanie. So I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger there, and I'm sorry about that. But you will have to wait until the next episode to hear what happens. And trust me, it needs an entire episode to do it justice. Chilling is the word I will use to describe it. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Now, as always with these bonus editions, they are more informal and a deeper look beyond what you've just heard for those who just can't wait to the next episode. And one thing that I hope you've noticed is that the professionals I interview, they're not just talking about any old case. They really care about this one. That's not to suggest they don't care about all the murder cases they've been involved with, but this one stands out. In particular, you heard about the brief but unique interaction between the pathologist, Dr. James Grieve, and Melanie's mum, Susan Patrick, which was very significant for both of them. For Susan, in the absolute rawest moment of grief, this man, against his advice, made the exception of letting her see Melanie's body. Now, so you understand, and he did touch on this, due to the legalities of the system and allowing time for a suspect to be caught and potential second post-mortem carried out, they couldn't tidy her up, so to speak. She still had her hair matted with blood, and you already know that the wounds she had on her neck were visible. As I've said before, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Grief. I have sat in many a trial when he's been giving evidence and he is very thorough. But this is the first time that I've ever been able to sit down with him and ask him about a case and how he feels about it. And as you'll hear, this is a man who is utterly professional, but also very human. How did it make you feel when you finished work that day and had to go home? And just sort of no, contemplate I it. I don't think I should answer that, really. You should ask my wife about these things, not me. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's my job. It was my job. Um, I, I think that I was very fortunate to have a job that was as stimulating as the job I did, which is not to say that I wanted to see any more victims of anything and which is not to say that, uh, that that I was I ever gloried in it because I didn't. All of these were absolute and utter tragedies. The loss of any life, or indeed, dare I say, any part of life, you know, be it through injury or illness, uh, the destruction of of hope and future is um, very difficult. And it would be better that it didn't happen. But if it does happen, then in order to have almost a preventive element, and I know we're not very good at the preventive element, but almost to have a preventive element, then it has to be investigated. And frankly, it has to be investigated carefully and properly. It has to be investigated carefully and properly without egos getting in the way, without celebrity 
but because it's the right thing to do and it's a job which society wants done because society wants justice. We are incredibly fortunate, even in these very difficult times, we are incredibly fortunate to live in a liberal democracy where, for the most part, there is a right of free speech. That right of free speech only comes because you have a legal framework and justice. And it's been, yeah, it's been my privilege to be part of the criminal justice system, if you want, for a lifetime. As I say, that doesn't in any way diminish any of the individual tragedies or the things that happen with them. There's a cost to everything. There's a cost to the lives that we all lead. And there is a cost to being a doctor in general, to being medical, and there's a cost to being a forensic pathologist in particular, which I understand because I was that pathologist. Uh, yeah, I was very blessed similarly to have a wife who understood it, but who would not let me discuss any of the, the more serious features because she didn't like them either. And especially when I went home in the middle of the night, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't, uh, she couldn't take these things. Um, one survives because one feels confident that we were trying to do the job as well as possible for our living patients. The communities that were rocked by, you know, a cr tragic criminal event in their midst, the families who have lost everything. It's only proper to do it and to do it thoroughly um, and to do it with integrity uh, so that answers can be got and justice can be served. Thank you. That's a wonderful answer. Wow. I'm kind of. Um, no, no, no. How are you going to edit um, out my no, weeping? I'm, I'm blown away by <laughs> you it. Just ask these questions. Tell me about th this. This particular case was a bit unusual because you actually, the family, did want to see the body. So I guess tell me when you first learned of that and how you handled it. Yes. Um, I don't. I don't know how unusual it is for the family to want to see the body. I would have expected perhaps all families, all relatives, to want to see. I think that mutilated bodies really should be left uh, for undertakers to reconstruct and to make up so that they are visible and look peaceful and dignified. That's what the undertaker's there for. And indeed, make no mistake, my mortuary technicians, when they... Um, reconstruct a body, they do extremely good jobs and some of them are incredibly caring. You know, it certainly would not be the first time that I had come upon one of our mortuary technicians actually doing the hair like a hairdresser would do the hair so that the body would look the way it did in life. And that's when it has to, that's when it might be done. No difficulty in in allowing people to see bodies where there isn't mutilation or decomposition um, because they're, they're bodies, they're dead bodies. They're nonetheless people, but they're just dead people. And again, that's one of my sort of bugbears is, um, you know, they said in, in uh, one of the originals of um, Silent Witness that one simple truth holds the key, says Amanda Burton. She says that this was once a human body 
who lived and breathed and loved like you and I. Critically, it is a human body. It's not, just because it's dead, that, that doesn't destroy the individual or what the individual was. And so, I, if, if, you know, tragic as it might be, if the body is viewable uh, and there's dignity and respectability of it, then why not? The difficulty where you've got severe injuries, particularly to the face and neck, which are the pieces that we would normally allow people to view, and particularly where these injuries have promoted some decomposition, which sadly was true in Melanie because she had lain um, over the weekend, um, I, I imagine, um, then th there was some of the discoloration that comes after death. Now, at one level, uh, that's, that's just, it's a fact, it's a truth, that's what happens, that's what will happen to us all in due course. You know, dust to dust, um, as the Astronomer Royal said, we all started as a little handful of stardust once eons ago, and we'll all end up a little handful of stardust one way or another. That's what happens. But honestly, for the people that you have loved, is it right? And I'm not absolutely sure I was ever quite clearly there. And I always felt, as I say, whether it was me being weak uh, or not, well, that's neither here nor there. I always felt that um, it was better not to confront relatives, but to wait until after some sort of reconstruction could be done and dignity could be restored. But for me, you know, it is a question of, of getting on and trying to manage the situation. And in this occasion, I did that. And uh, it, it was, uh, I didn't do it often. And as I say, I took these responsibilities myself. I didn't see why I should ask a police officer or a procurator for school who's a lawyer. I didn't, didn't see why I should ask them to go and explain these things. It was my position and my attitude. So I, I would, would, would deal with it. And She tells a story of, she, I don't think she was apologizing. She was explaining to you, I can't cry. She was being strong and she said she couldn't cry. And she recalls you saying something like, you know, there are other nations, etc., that would wail at this moment, but you're from the Northeast. I can't remember <laughs> specifically can't. saying that, but, but it doesn't, 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 doesn't sound as though it would be necessarily something that I would not say. But um, these sudden, unexpected, tragic deaths, they're, you know, they're, they're awful for everybody. And whatever way people react is the way they react. There's not a right way or a wrong way. There's not a way you should do it or you shouldn't do it. There's the way that any individual reacts to a situation. And I think, I think we've seen it all. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've been present at many, many identifications and some people do scream and some people break down and some people have fainted and, and so on. There is no right way and no wrong way. If she says that I said that, if it sticks in her mind, it's entirely possible that I said it. And if she took any uh, consolation from it or it helped her in any way, then I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased about that. But, you know, um, talker like me, I'll say anything that, that comes into my head. And I'd agree with that. He is a talker. In fact, my full interview with him was a few hours long and we could have talked a few more.
Another interviewee I love talking to is my old pal and former journalist Alison Shaw, and we go way back. I actually started working full-time in journalism when I was still training at the age of 16, so by 19 I had experience, but Alison was a journalist I very much respected and I'm very fond of. We couldn't help but become friends, despite being in competition. I was 19 and I was... Just, I, I remember the first time I saw you, because I think, had you been, you'd been away off and had your kids and things, and then yes. I think I was already working in the court, and then in comes this glamorous, blonde, self-assured, sassy... <laughs> You're being terribly kind. ...woman. And I'll be honest, I was a bit like, who's she? And we, we were rivals, effectively. Yeah, we were rivals, uh-huh. and, and I think we sort of sized each other up <laughs> for quite a long time until we realised that we could actually probably be more effective together mm-hmm. by covering more things and keeping each other informed. But of course, there would always be the case where you would find something out that you didn't want me to know and I would find something out that I would try to keep from you, which didn't always work out. And it was great yeah. if it did, you know. <laughs> but we were certainly more effective together. Yeah without letting our news desk know that that's what we're actually yeah, up to. Yeah, if, if yeah. we could have sidestepped it, and if our if our editors at that time were listening to this now, then we're in deep trouble. But yeah, yeah I, what I my recollection is, you know, I was still fairly green around the gills, and you just seemed so together, and and I was like, oh dear God. But, but we, we had a lot of pressure on us, because we were covering yes. multiple courtrooms, mm-hmm. Um, I remember doing about sometimes 15 stories a day. Yeah, you were the sassy little thing as well, you know, and you're saying, oh, well, I, I look super confident, but I mean, you were focused and I know, I know that you always wanted to be a journalist and you were totally focused on, on achieving that and nothing very much was going to stop you, you know. Um, yeah, you were determined. And as I say, we were sort of eyeing each other up and thinking, hmm, I'm not really wanting her on my patch sort of thing, you know. <laughs> and then we became great friends. Yeah, we did, <laughs> yeah. so lovely. We kind of lived in a constant state of fear because we would get hauled out. And this was back in an era of the kind of tough newsrooms. I mean, it prepared me absolutely in the best possible way to go on and do what I did mm-hmm. in my career. With, I mean, what I ended up doing in TV was a bit different, but if you could make it in the the newspaper newsroom, then you, yeah. could, you, you toughened you up, didn't it? I started in the 70s, and there were actually quite a lot of young women journalists then. Mm. And you had a very long sort of training period, but by God, you knew what you were talking about by the end of that. You yeah. Know? yeah, Because you had to know almost as much about the law as the lawyers mm-hmm. who were handling the cases mm-hmm. right, and the prosecutors, because you needed to know what you could and couldn't say, you know? Yeah. And you also had to have absolutely excellent shorthand, which is something, you know, I I mean, I still use shorthand, you know, phone messages and people Mm -hmm. are like, what what are you doing? I'm like, (laughs) my handwriting's terrible because from the age of 16, I've done shorthand, but Mm -hmm. we needed to have this, you know, really, um, I think it was about 110, 120 words per minute, Mm -hmm. roughly. Um, because you needed to get verbatim. Mm-hmm. But you would go in huge bursts, you'd probably do about 200 words a minute at some point yeah. when you were, yeah. and you began to go on automatic pilot as well, you know. You'd be in court writing the story and then you'd have to run out and we actually did have to go and it was a proper phone box. <laughs> That's right. The <laughs> phone box. And you would, a and smelly the, one usually. <laughs> and the phone box was in the, the atrium and it was this great, I mean it was at the top of the stairs if I remember correctly and then the stairs go down there's this massive mm-hmm. big Airy room where there'd be 
defence agents and prosecutors and journalists and then we had the women's voluntary service right, tea yes, stand yeah. where we overdosed mm-hmm. on cups of tea and tonic tea cakes if I remember and correctly. And butteries. Butteries. <laughs> we had such an unhealthy diet I then. I mean, but you didn't have time. You, I mean, No, you didn't. But you couldn't afford to do that because you, you had to be so switched on because anybody could say anything at any point that you maybe didn't think it was significant then, but you had to have it logged away because it would become significant, especially in a long-running trial. Was that not the first really big murder case that you were involved in? Yeah, because I remember the first one I was involved in and I would have been about your age, 19 or 20 as well. And I can tell you, I can still tell you the name of the accused. His name was James Douglas Wilkie. And uh, he had been arrested up in Aberdeen, but he lived in, he had lived in Dundee and he'd murdered his wife. And strangled her on their little boy's christening day and she and her his tie was still around her neck when her body was found several years later wow yeah it was dug up accidentally by a digger so and it was between it was between dundee and perth and i remember it was on the nap to tully backarch road and every time i go down that road and i see that sign it sends a shiver down my spine. So it's exactly the same yeah. thing. That's why it's had such a huge okay, impact on I'd, you. I had covered a few deaths and things before that, um, but it was drug-related things. This mm-hmm. was, if Very you like, human. the first human mm-hmm. story of someone mm-hmm. that you could relate to. Mm-hmm. or you know. And Can you believe that it's 20 years? No, I was quite shocked, actually, when you said it was 20 years. No, it doesn't feel like that at all, actually. Um, that's a, it's odd <laughs> but it's not something that people really have spoken about much in the interim You, it's the nature of news I suppose that it's just it's transient and it flits out of people's um, consciousness although we're much more aware but, yeah, of it because yeah. we covered it we, we will never forget yeah. we, I, mm-hmm. can't, I can't ever go down that street without yeah. So we are human after I, all. God, no, I'm a big softy. I'm a big softy. And this one still affects me. It, it, I, I still feel so sad for her family. and you know. I often think about the case because I still live nearby, you know, and you walk past it and you just remember, remember the name. And you've got children of your own, you know, you just, yeah, this, you were all sort of hard-nosed, you know, and even at 20, you know, you were hard-nosed. But, and you're concentrating and you're getting everything 100% accurate, but you're not entirely made of stone yourself, you know, when you come home and think about it, you know, it's just, it's a horrific thing to have to cover. And it doesn't go away. So there you have it, journalists, pathologists, and all the professionals who worked on this case. We are human and we do have emotions. And even though we'd be able to put on a professional face, during a hard day of work, we would go home and we would think about Melanie Sturton. And we still do, 20 years on. Obviously the emotional impact on us is nothing compared to the family, and that's why I'm doing this. So thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate all the comments that you put on social media and I try to reply to them all. And please do, if you like this, go on to iTunes and rate and review. The next episode is coming soon. It's called The Confession. This is the storyteller, Murder Most Foul, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquare.